Amen. All right. We got some young folks in the house today want to go downstairs. You probably want to stay up here and listen to me, but... And you can. Bye-bye. I miss that, don't you? What do you think? You want to bring him back in? Okay. Starting in January, we might uh, change it up again. Molly loves it when we do that. Um, she likes to, you know, readjust and change things and just keeps things exciting for her. Um, so, wow. All right. We are um, walking through the life of David, and, and last week we uh, caught up with David when he was on this rescue mission, and what we see, okay, in, in the first six weeks of David, uh, we've walked through six weeks of David's life, he was anointed as king um, in the very first uh, message, and then uh, all the, the different things that he went through uh, over the last six weeks, um, we've, we've seen him go through um, running for his life, having the opportunity to kill Saul and not doing it. Um, we've seen him get angry and refrain, um, and then we saw that he had uh, this, this opportunity to, to um, kind of be reset um, in his walk with God because there was... Uh, uh, something going on where he was making some mistakes and he needed you know, kind of to get his mind back right. You ever feel that way? That you're kind of in a place where you need to get your mind uh, back on the right things? Anybody? And uh, David, he, he finally gets you know his mind back on the right things. And uh, now we're going to jump into you know the place where he's going to become king finally. All of that takes probably, I'm not exactly sure, 12, 14 years, maybe more. Um, he, he is walking through um, some very difficult things for uh, probably 15 years of his life. He's been anointed as king, but, but he's been running for his life. Now, I'm going to tell you that because um, he's about to enter into the hardest period of his life where he is going to become comfortable. And many of you and I, would, we would say, well, that's not hard. I, I like to be comfortable. Anybody like to be comfortable? How many of you like to have plenty of money? I, I expected more hands. Okay. Your job is secure. Um, your marriage is peaceful. Your kids are not misbehaving. Your health is in, you know, you're in, you're in good shape health-wise. Anybody like to be in that position? Um, well, what we find with David is that um, even though that's kind of the goal of life, okay, to be in a successful, um, safe, and comfortable position, that's where he's going to get in the most trouble. Because for him and for most people, um, we begin to get lazy in our walk with God. When things are going well, we have this tendency to kind of drop off spiritually. 
Um, and there's a warning in Scripture about that. So we're going to see, we're going to walk through all the victories that David um, experienced, and all the wonderful things that God did in his life. Um, but before that, we're going to actually uh, preface it with a, a prophetic warning from Moses, okay? So we're going to walk through David's kingship, but before we do, let's uh, stand as we read God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, and starting in verse 17, here's what's going on. Um, the Israelites have just been through their wilderness wandering 40 years. A bunch of them have died. New generation comes up, and they're about to go into the promised land, take over uh, Israel and conquer it. And Moses says, okay, now is when you are uh, most in danger uh, of rejecting God, of falling away from your faith. And here's what he says. He says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And then when he says wealth, he's talking about um, the promised land, safety, security, comfort, okay? Uh, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So God had promised the Israelites, God had promised Abraham that they would certainly inherit the promised land. Um, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. And Father, we are asking for help, asking for help to understand your word, asking for strength, Lord, to keep our eyes on you, no matter if things are good or bad, Lord, no matter what our circumstances may be. I know there are a lot of people in this room uh, watching or listening who uh, are in a lot of different situations. Some are heartbroken, have been through some painful things. Some are, are in turmoil. Some are confused. Some are uh, doing pretty well, um, Lord. But no matter where we find ourselves this day, God, we pray that we would keep our eyes on you, knowing that uh, you have plans and purposes that are greater than ours. Lord, we, we can have goals and we can have desires uh, for our life, Lord, but we are going to lay all of those things down, Lord, this day. We're going to lay everything that we think and believe about what we want, and we're going to submit that to you, God. Ask for your help to understand what is success in your eyes. Help us to live in a way that brings you glory. Help us to live in a way that uh, continues to exalt your name and your kingdom, no matter what, no matter where, no matter who, wherever we find ourselves, God, we are going to give you all the honor because what we have has been given to us by you. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Success uh, doesn't seem like a problem, would you agree? It's, it's probably what most of us are looking for is success, victory, comfort. Um, in fact, you know, when we do have success in our life uh, or we have good things happening, um, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I was talking to somebody last week about our parking situation here at the church, and I said, man, I wish we had some more land uh, so that we could expand our parking. 
And they said, what do you think they said? That's a good problem to have, right? That's the kind of problem I would like to have. Like, we, we have good problems. We have space issues in the church. We, you know, on Wednesday nights, every room is being used. And we're, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, organize and, and uh, orchestrate things in a creative way so that we can get more people in the building to do things. And you would say that's a good problem to have. We're not struggling with trying to figure out how to get people um, to come to something that we're doing. We're trying to figure out how to deal with the people that are coming. That's a good problem to have. Uh, I have way too much money in my bank account, right? That's just a, that's a good problem to have, and that's a joke. But um, so these are the things that you think, well, what, what's really the problem here? Um, and for David, the problem is that he's going to find himself in a position where um, he begins to think that he has accomplished everything on his own. That's a problem. That's not a good problem to have. Um, the Israelites found themselves in that same place, and this was, a, this was a constant warning that make sure, no matter what good things are happening in your life, whatever blessings you have in your life, make sure that you remember to give thanks, to honor God, to be dependent on Him, to be in a place in your heart where you know that it was really His doing and not your own doing, right? So um, here's what happens. The end of 1 Samuel, uh, David finds himself um, in a position where he can become finally the king because all of Israel has gone to war against the Philistines. The Philistines have gathered their whole army. Israel has gathered their whole army. They gather up north. David is kind of in this weird place where, where he is not allowed to be on either side of this battle. The Philistines don't trust him, and the Israelites don't want him, okay? Saul uh, has rejected David, so David is kind of hiding out, or he is in another place while this whole battle's going on. This is uh, the end of 1 Samuel. Now, what happens is that uh, Saul and his sons um, all die in this battle. And what, what it is, is not just that um, Israel loses a battle, it's that fundamentally Israel is, has lost the war. They are so completely defeated that uh, Israel as a whole, as a nation, uh, doesn't know where it's going. Their king is dead. Jonathan, the next uh, to, to follow Saul, is dead, and some other sons are, are also dead. So what happens is they make uh, this one son uh, the king, Ish-bosheth. How would you like to have that name? Ish-bosheth. It's almost as bad as Meshibosheth. I mean, who's naming these people? Um, so anyway, Ish-bosheth becomes king. And uh, here's what happens is that David says that, no, that's not right. Uh, David is next in line. He's been anointed as king. He knows that he is the rightful king. He accepted that Saul was the anointed king. So he was not going to lay a finger on Saul. God was going to have to take care of Saul in his own way, in his own time, and David would wait it out. If he couldn't do anything else, he would just outlive Saul, okay? That's what he does. But Ishbosheth is is not the rightful heir to the kingdom. So David goes to Judah, 
which is his tribe. Now, Israel is 12 tribes, okay? He becomes a regional king. He becomes the king of his own family. But the rest of Israel, all the 11 other tribes, have made Ishbosheth their king. Now, I'm going to do something here. Well, let me read this real quick. Um, this is how it talks about it in 2 Samuel 2. Verse 10, it says, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. The house of Judah followed David. Chapter 3 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So David says, You're not the legitimate king, but he is the popular king. And uh, I'm going to spiritualize this, okay? If I, I'm just going to admit that to you right out front. Um, what is happening here is similar to what we see in our world right now. Who is the king of kings? Jesus. Uh, he is the anointed son of God. Now, Messiah in the Old Testament is the same word as Christ in the New Testament. Both of those words mean anointed one. Jesus is the rightful owner of the world. He is the rightful ruler of every human being on this earth. Amen? Amen. Who does the Bible say is the prince of this world? Anybody know? The prince of the, the ruler of the powers of the air is, is Satan. How can that be? If Jesus is the rightful ruler, he is the anointed king, he is the, the son of God, the, the rightful owner of everything, how can there be... A, a, another rival uh, ruler of this world. And the, the reason why is just like what we see in First uh, and Second Samuel, is that even though Jesus is the rightful ruler, Satan is the popular king, or the popular prince. The majority of the world, and, and this is what the, the world in its blindness does not understand, the majority of the world is following Satan. Okay, giving him their allegiance, following after his plans, his schemes, his designs, his desires, his will. This is, this is how he gets control. It's not because he has any right. He has no right, but he is prince by majority rule. And you and I, okay, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what you have said is in rebellion to the systems of the world and the majority of popular opinion, I'm going to follow the true king, even if I'm alone. And, and nobody else follows, and nobody else believes, and nobody else trusts, and nobody else is going to do what Jesus wants. I'm going to do what he's called me to do, and I'm going to trust him as the ruler of this world. And I'm going to inherit a kingdom that is going to be very different than this world. It's going to put you at odds with the world that you find yourself in every single day and the majority of the people that you find yourself surrounded by every single day because they don't get it. And our job is to help them to get it, to help them to understand the difference between a, a ruler like Jesus and a ruler like Satan. Um, some of the practical things that happen... Uh, as a result of that is that we have a majority of people who are voting for 
things that are evil and making them legal. Um, this last, what, week in our state, um, one of the most lost states in the United States, okay, uh, which is why we're here. <laughs> we want to run away and move to another state. <laughs> Anybody? <Yeah>. But <laughs> we're here as believers because we need to make a difference in a very dark place. Just past a couple of things that are inherently evil, okay? Re restricting or, or um, revoking the right of a parent to be um, called upon to know about a child's abortion. This just happened in our state. How is that not um, obviously a, a wicked thing? My child cannot take an aspirin at the school without me being notified. But now you're going to say that they can go and have a surgery and kill another human being, and, and I have no right to know that. Does that make sense to anybody? How is that not a satanic plan? Okay, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I don't agree. I don't care if it's the law, the law can be immoral. Do you know that? And we say as believers that, no, that's not right. That's not, that's not godly. That's not moral. That's not ethical. That's not, doesn't even make sense. Now, here's the, the next step um, in this, is that um, Ishbosheth has some commanders in his army that uh, say, you know, they don't agree that Ishbosheth should be king and David should be king. And so what they do is they assassinate Ishbosheth. And then they run to David and they say, hey, we did this huge favor for you. We killed Ishbosheth so that you can be king. And what do you think David does as a result of that? Thanks, buddies. Come and be my trusted bodyguards. He says, uh, no, that, that wasn't right. Uh, and he executes those two guys. You think, well, they're doing David a big favor. Why? You cannot fight evil with evil. And David understood that, that even if Ishbosheth should not be king, and even if David was the anointed king and he was the rightful heir, that you cannot combat evil with evil. And as believers, okay, I'm still kind of spiritualizing this. I hope you will forgive me for that. We have to be dedicated to being kind and godly and gracious and loving, even when we are in stark disagreement with the things that are happening in our world. Okay? On your Facebook feed, you have no right to be ugly and hateful and call names. You disagree and you call the truth for the truth and lies for lies and wickedness for wickedness, but do not be hateful. Does that make sense? You can't fight evil uh, with evil. You have to fight it with goodness and graciousness and love. Um, 
and the New Testament tells us all about this. Um, Paul says that uh, he wants you to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. That in our, our Christianity, we have to, in connection with our devotion to Jesus Christ, when we are kind, we pour coals into the laps of our enemies. They can't stand it that we will be consistent in our, in our faith. They would love to see Christians acting ugly because then they can say, um, well, look, you're no better than anybody else. You say you're a believer, but this is how you treat people. You know, where's your faith? We have to be different. You, you have to call truth for truth and lies for lies, but you have to do it in a way that does not uh, undermine your witness. Uh, David consistently, um, at this point, um, he does not undermine his witness. Now, um, some of the other things that happen, um, he, he gains the kingship. It takes years for this to happen. Um, two years, Ishbosheth rules, and then it's going to take David another five years before the whole uh, Israelite uh, community and the whole nation comes behind him. But when they do, I mean, it is something um, amazing. And so what happens is, um, we're going to jump over to First Chronicles uh, to see some of the things that uh, it talks about with David's rule. Anybody want to know the difference between First Chronicles and Second Samuel? Raise your hand. <sighs> That's disappointing. Okay. So for the three people that raise their hand, you're going to um, get a little bit of teaching. For the rest of you, you just go to sleep for the next minute. So First Samuel is all about the, the reign of Saul, okay? Second Samuel is all about um, the, the reign of David. Uh, First Kings begins with Solomon and his line, but also what happens is that the, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, he becomes king after Solomon dies, but then he splits the kingdom. So there's Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Easy to remember, right? So what happens is they go back and forth in First and Second Kings between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This king lived until this point, and then this other king became king, and then they go back down to the south and say, this king was king for this one, and he died, and then he... Okay, they go back and forth, back and forth throughout First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles, you still with me? Um, only talks about the southern kingdom, Judah. Does not give you... Uh, references to the northern kings. If you're ever wondering, like, why well, it just seems like it's repeating itself, it's, there's more detail in First and Second Chronicles, but there's also less because it doesn't talk about the whole nation. It only talks about the southern part. Okay, lecture over. Back to uh, First Chronicles 11. Uh, David has uh, finally gotten the kingship, and he's gathered around him an army, and here's a description of his mighty men, uh, verse 10 says, uh, this is First Chronicles 11, verse 10. Now, these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom. Joshobim, a Hakmonite, was chief of the three. He had three that were far superior, greater warriors than any of the other ones, okay? Three mighty men. Uh, he wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. Okay, in one battle, he killed 300 people with a spear. 
Um, next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eliezer, son of Dodo. Uh, yeah. There was a plot of ground full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines. Okay, so they're in this battle. Philistines are gathering, and the, the Israelites, David's men, are, are scared, and they all run away except for this one guy. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines. So this one guy... The Lord saved through a great victory. Um, then down in verse 20, Now Abishai, brother of Joab, was chief of the 30. Okay, chief of the 30. Not part of the three, um, but he was over the 30 mighty men. He wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. So there's a, a little bit of a description. You can keep reading through all the things that they'd done and who they are. Uh, interestingly enough, Uzziah, or not Uzziah, um, Oh, what's his name? Uriah. Thanks for the help, guys. You're supposed to help me out. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. And we'll get to that later, but um, what a shame uh, how David treats him. Okay. Verse 8. From the Gadites, so the, the nation or the uh, tribe of Gad, uh, there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness uh, mighty and experienced warriors, ex expert with shield and spear, whose Faces were like the faces of lions. How would you like this to be your description? Faces of lions who are swift as gazelles upon the mountains. And verse 14, these Gadites were officers of the army. The least was a match for a hundred men and the greatest for a thousand. Sound like a pretty stout warrior? He's got a whole group of these guys that have come over to him. Um, over verse 22, for from day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army like an army of God. These are the numbers. Oh, now, let me just pause there. An army of God, not just in number, okay, this, but in power. It's like having a, a, an army of angels who are surrounding you. Like the, the, this was fantastically powerful. These are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him. According to the word of the Lord, the men of Judah bearing shield and spear were 6,800 armed troops. Of the Simeonites, uh, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. Of the Levites, 4,600. The prince uh, Jehoiada of the house of Aaron, well, and with him, 3,700. Now, they make a distinction between Levites and priests uh, because what some people don't realize is that the whole um, tribe of Levi are all servants of the temple, but you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron, okay, to be a priest. So the Levites um, were 4,600, but the priests, uh, these descendants of Aaron, 3,700. Uh, of the Benjamites, kinsmen of Saul, 3,000, of whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. So up until then, these guys were devoted to Saul, loyal to Saul, his house, making sure he's going to be king. They say, you know what? Nope, David's king. And they come and they help him become king. Um, of the Ephraimites, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous in, uh, men in their father's houses. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were expressly named to come and make David king. Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times. So wise, understanding men. Um, 200 chiefs, okay, so they're ruling over 
tribes or over families, the 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Of Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops. Of Naphtali, 1,000 commanders with whom were 37,000 men armed with shield and spear. Of the Danites, 28,600 men equipped for battle. Of Asher, 40,000 seasoned troops ready for battle. Of the Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh from beyond the Jordan. So uh, on the east side of the Jordan, uh, there were tribes uh, of Israel living there because they had conquered that land as well. Um, And they were given uh, that portion as their inheritance. 120,000 men armed with all the weapons of war. All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of single mind to make David king. And here's the point. David had the power of an army that, if you look at that list, it seems invincible. Would you agree? These These guys are not to be fooled with. And he's got hundreds of thousands of seasoned warriors. And why this is important is because um, David, with that kind of an army, can do what? Anything. Anything. The other uh, kingdoms of the world, um, I'll just name one, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has a similar experience. God has ordained Nebuchadnezzar with the power to conquer the world. He's given him the authority and the power to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar goes after every nation he can, he can come across, okay? And he begins to conquer land after land after land after land. And he could have, if he could have gotten to the rest of the world, he could have conquered the entire world, okay? God gave him the authority to do that. God gave David the same power to be able to do something like that. Here's the, the wisdom of David. He was content with what he knew God had certainly given him as the land of Israel. Even though he had the power to conquer the rest of the world, he was content with Israel because that was his promised land. You will find success, okay, defined in your life by wisdom to know what God has blessed you with and the limit that you need to set so that you do not overextend yourself. Where most people begin to go wrong is they want more than what God has blessed them with. And they keep pushing further and wanting more and wanting to become greater and wanting to have more achievements and wanting to have the promotion and having more things. And what happens is that because we are not content, uh, we end up sacrificing our families on the altar of success. More hours at work, more and more things that I got to pay for, and the kids get brushed aside, and the ability to be home and be comfortable with your family is all sacrificed. At what point Will you prioritize your relationship with God, your family, and then your work? 
How many of us do that? How many of us put our job over our family or our family over our relationship with God? And we're not content and we keep pushing for more and we're sacrificing the things that are most valuable in our lives. Um, David has enough wisdom to know. God has blessed him with the promised land and that's what he needs to rule and he's not going to push beyond that. Um, he conquers uh, his enemies Chapter 14, 1 Chronicles 14, 16, uh, David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all the lands. The Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Um, and then it says in chapter 15, David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. So the, the last thing okay, that we're going to talk about here is the fact that David makes Jerusalem the political and the religious capital of his nation. He consolidates the entire nation around an identity that is God-centered. Okay? One of the great achievements that he, he actually makes in his life. First Chronicles chapter 17. He begins to believe that he can do anything. Here's what he says. Now, when David lived in his house, okay, he'd built himself a palace. Um, he's gotten comfortable. David said to Nathan the prophet, he says, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Now, how many of you know that uh, for its whole history, um, Israel had regarded the ark of the covenant as the physical representation of God, okay? Uh, they didn't worship idols. They didn't have an image. What they had was a covenant, a promise between them and God that they relied on. The ark is a representation of that promise, of that relationship. But it's been going around in a tent, which is called the tabernacle. Um, and David says, I want, I want to make this thing permanent. All the blessings that God has brought into my life, I want, to make, I want to make a house for God. God has done something for me. I want to do something for God. That's basically what he's saying. Is, is there anything wrong, inherently wrong with that? God has blessed you. You want to do something for God. Do you think that's okay? Nathan said to David, I agree. Do all that is in your heart. God is with you. Basically, David, you can't fail. Everything you do succeeds. Everywhere you go, your, your enemies fall by the wayside. Everything is blessed. Everything su succeeds. It's just you're such a, a, a godly man. God is with you. You just can't fail. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And it says this, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. A um, couple of reasons. One is, the Bible says that David is a man of blood, a man of war. Um, but I think there's a bigger reason. God is reminding David, God builds the house. God builds the house. David, all he ever was as successful as he was, was a servant of God. 
Here's what he, God tells David. Okay, I'm going to skip down to verse 11. He says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. Okay, so David, guess what? You're going to die. And, and whatever you have, you're going to leave to other people. And you all know that. We're, we're not going to be here someday. And all the success that you think that you're, you're achieving, all the whatever, money that you're compiling or, or houses or cars or things that you have, I mean, someday you're going to leave it to somebody else and you will not be known for those things. You're going to be known for your character, for your relationships, for your walk with the Lord. That's what you're going to be known for. That's, that's your legacy. Your legacy is not your stuff, not your land, not your things. Your legacy is your character. He says, uh, when you walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, kind of talking about Solomon a little bit, but more than that. He's going way beyond that. He said, he, he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father. Now, does this sound more like Jesus than Solomon? I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. So three times in that verse, three different times he says forever, forever, forever. What that means is this is a certainty. God is promising this will absolutely happen. Does Solomon's kingdom continue forever? Say no. Jesus' kingdom lasts forever. Okay. The temple that Solomon builds, does it last forever? Okay, it lasts about 400 years, then it's destroyed. They rebuild it, last another 400 years, and then it's destroyed. But the, king, the temple that God is going to build, and he's going to place his Holy Spirit in that is permanent, is what? It's you. It's you and me, the human heart. That is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Son that lives forever is Jesus Christ. He says, you want to know what success is? We all want it. Is it. Am I wrong? We all want success. Here's what success is. Success is, God, I love you. What is your will? Love God. Love your neighbor. This is God's great command, right? Love God. Love your neighbor. He says, you want success? You want something permanent? Then you put your trust in Jesus Christ. He paid for your sin on the cross. He wipes it out forever. You want to know what, what life is all about? It's really about his kingdom. People are smart. I mean, we, we can be really foolish, but people are pretty smart. We can build things. We can make things. Uh, we can, we, we made, I mean, Al Gore made the internet, but I mean, we, we helped. <laughs> we can fly we can communicate across the world. We, we, can, we can do so much. We can build skyscrapers. We can, I mean, you just imagine the things that a human being can do. It's, it's mind-boggling. But we cannot live forever apart 
from Jesus Christ. You cannot do anything apart from God's uh, breath of life in, in you, in your lungs. You, you didn't control that. You didn't make it happen. You, you're here not by your own choice. Nobody had a part to play in, in becoming a human being. God created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He, he gave you a personality. He gave you an intelligence. He gave you gifts and abilities. He just, how much choice did you have in that? He, and he just says, you know, many are the plans in a man's heart, but God will make it succeed. It's the Lord who makes it succeed. And he tells us this one thing. He says, I made you. I love you. I have a plan for you. And all of that is confirmed in Jesus Christ. You put your hope in him. You put your trust in him. You allow him to have control of your life and you're successful. Success is faithfulness. David knows it. He struggles. Here's the wonderful thing. You're going to fail. But God has grace. He's got so much forgiveness and love and grace. He says, put your trust in me and every single day come back and remember how dependent you are on your Lord. And guess what? You can be the most successful person in this world, no matter what you have or don't have, because you can be faithful. Whatever he's given you, family, workplace, school, people in your life, the opportunities that you have, everything that we have, we just place back on the altar, say, God, um, help me to, to honor you in it. And if I do that today, I'm the most successful person in the world. Amen? Father, we love you. We praise you, God. We thank you. We don't have to uh, rule kingdoms like David. We don't have to uh, acquire piles of wealth or build cities or get more and more degrees or trophies. Lord, we, we can be faithful no matter where we are, what we do, Lord. And I know that you, you don't mind us doing any of those things. If that's your call in our life, that's fantastic. We, we lay those things down on the altar. Lord, help them never to become an idol, whether we're rich or poor, educated or, or not. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be faithful, trusting Jesus, letting you rule, following your will, um, obeying your word, declaring the gospel, and uh, seeing your kingdom grow. And Lord, we pray in a dark world, Lord, help us to shine bright, to be different, um, something that this world desperately needs, a reflection of Jesus for your glory and your kingdom and his holy name. We pray. Amen. I want to invite you this morning. I don't know what you have or don't have or think that you have or don't have, but um, what I do know is that you have a life 
that God wants to use. And whether you think that you have failed or you think that you're in that comfort zone, whichever, um, we have to recommit. Amen? Lay that life down before the Lord. Let Him have it. Let Him use it. Um, but we got to make the choice day in, day out uh, to let Him rule in our lives. And if that's you this morning, lay it at the altar. Any failure you've had, lay it at the altar. Start over. Uh, any success that you've had, lay it at the altar. Amen? Let him use it. Let's stand and sing.